This is a production of WEDU-PBS, Tampa, St. Petersburg, Sarasota. Coming up next, with another year gone by, we'll count down the big stories of 2023. What are the changes, trends, and political decisions that are shaping our future? We've invited some of our best panelists to discuss the past year. Emily Mahoney of the Tampa Bay Times, Steve Bosquet from the Florida Sun Sentinel, Eric Deggins from NPR, and Professors Ray Arsenault from USF St. Petersburg and Diane Roberts from FSU, all right now on Florida This Week. We're back again with our year in review to mull over what happened during the past 12 months, and we've selected our five top state stories of the year. Our first story is about New College's transformation. This year, Governor Ron DeSantis set in motion a takeover of New College in Sarasota. Known for its unconventional approach to academics and its diverse student population, DeSantis and his allies vowed at the beginning of the year to transform the liberal arts institution known as Florida's Public Honors College into a bastion of conservatism. As a result, many faculty members and students have left. The state is pouring record amounts of money into New College, and there's been an influx of new student athletes seeking to join a newly created athletic program. Ray Arsenal, let me start with you. Uh, the governor, is, is he accomplishing his goal and is the goal a necessary one? Well, I think he's accomplishing his goal. Um, I would say it's certainly not necessary and that it's uh, kind of a gratuitous political stunt, frankly. What and was the reputation of New College before the governor decided to Well, it had a great reputation. Um, it was, you know, it was, uh, for, for many academics, it was the pride and joy of the state system, even more than the University of Florida or any of the other major universities. You know, it had a, a sterling reputation, wonderful faculty, excellent students, uh, and a long tradition of uh, terrific liberal arts education. The governor says, look, the enrollment is low, so we want to increase the enrollment. Well, the enrollment was always put deliberately low. They wanted to keep the student uh, teacher ratio about 10 to 1, so they had about 750 students and 75 faculty members, and that's the way they wanted it. And uh, it, it wasn't supposed to fit the normal kind of data points that large universities would. Uh, it was uh, all about quality education and kind of close, kind of intimate relationships between faculty and students. Uh, maybe I could read from uh, the American Association of University Professors report, which came out on December 5th. The AAUP, as it's called, uh, very, a venerable organization, goes back to 1915. And they said in their report that the unprecedented takeover of New College of Florida and the imposition at that institution of an aggressively ideological and politically motivated agenda stands as one of the most egregious and extensive violations of AAUP principles and standards at a single institution in recent memory. I think they're actually being uh, maybe even too, too kind to what's, what's happened. It's, uh, I know I've talked to many, many uh, fellow academics and 
There's really no, no precedent for what's happened. It's extraordinary. The governor says he wants to turn it into a version of Hillsdale College in Michigan, which is a, a very conservative private school in Michigan. Do we need that as an antidote to what's going on on other campuses well, here in Florida? Not only do we not need it, it's, uh, it's really against uh, separation of church and state. It's against uh, First Amendment, uh, uh, traditions of academic freedom. I mean, Hillsdale, as a, as a deliberately Christian college, private school, has no relationship whatsoever to, to a pu public institution like, like New College. I mean, what, what uh, I think Governor DeSantis and his Republican allies have done is, again, violated the First Amendment, uh, thrown to the wind long-standing standards of academic freedom and the, the ability of faculty and students to explore the world of ideas on their own without any political interference from a governor who, frankly, has been demagogic and uh, really outrageous in his in intrusion into the, into the uh, educational lives of these people. Diane, the Florida University system is, is renowned across the country, FSU and UF, uh, two of the top schools in the country, I think it's fair to say. What impact does the governor's uh, move to take over New College, how does that affect the other universities around the, uh, around the state? I think we all know we're on the list too. and. While I don't think any of my colleagues are changing their teaching practice, at least not that I know of, certainly our younger faculty, uh, many of them are looking for an exit strategy. Uh, this is no way to uh, produce quality higher education, kind of education that our students will need out in the real world, the real world which is diverse, has many different competing ideas, all kinds of different people. What he's done at New College is absolutely disgraceful. I mean, not only is it run by an overpaid and underqualified uh, political ally, um, it's just destroyed the whole concept of an honors college. New College was a place for kids who didn't want to go to uh, a school that was dedicated quite so much to football as FSU. Florida, not that I don't love football, but uh, you know, they didn't want to be on a fraternity sorority campus. They wanted to be with creative people and allowed to express themselves how they want to. And he's destroyed that. And I, I wonder just real quickly, is it harder to attract PhD uh, scholars? Is it harder to attract faculty or faculty leaving, not just New College, but universities around the state because of the governor's uh, changes at New College? Well, more than half of the faculty members at New College have left. Uh, many of the students have left. I mean, the, Governor DeSantis has virtually destroyed the institution, frankly. Many of the students now have to live off campus because he's brought in all these uh, basically un un underqualified students who are student athletes. They had no athletic programs, of course, and now they have going to have several. Uh, the students who were there now have to live in a hotel, most, most of them. You have Richard Corcoran, uh, who had no academic uh, credentials whatsoever, who actually uh, dropped out of the University of Florida when he was an undergraduate, and uh, was, uh, of course, Marco Rubio's chief of staff before he went to the House and was the Speaker of the House, and uh, is an openly kind of, uh, you know, Christian nationalist, uh, right-wing extremist, as is Chris Rufo, who's one of the kind of the lead figure. Uh, an absolutely infamous character who's recently attacked the, the president of Harvard. And he's on the uh, board of trustees. He's on the board of trustees, and he's, this, he's the central, central figure. And uh, he has 
absolutely no credentials whatsoever, and uh, you can see the proof's in the pudding. The place is simply falling apart. All right. Well, our next story at number four, Florida book bans. Flo book removal or book banning continued across the state this year. The writers group Pen America says Florida overtook Texas during the last school year for the number one spot when it comes to the number of books banned in public schools. There's been a 33% spike in book bans nationally. Florida now accounts for more than 40% of all documented book bans across the country, with 1,400 books removed from school shelves across the state. Some of the books removed from the school shelves, and Tango Makes Three, The Handmaid's Tale, Invisible Man, Catch-22, Brave New World, On the Road, Flowers for Algernon, Their Eyes Were Watching God, and Slaughterhouse-Five. The governor says there's no statewide ban on books. He says these are local decisions urged on by parents who are trying to protect children. And Diane, uh, what do you make of the governor who held a press conference in Tampa a few months ago saying there are no book bans in Florida? He calls it the book ban hoax. And what he means is, yes, there's no statewide ban. Uh, you know, the bans are local, but they're based on state statutes. The infamous don't say gay law, the new regulations, which are enshrined in law, uh, about teaching certain things about race or about, God forbid, white privilege, a thing the governor says doesn't exist. And so, of course, local school boards, especially those with a strong contingent of uh, Moms for Liberty types or those who are frightened of Moms for Liberty, um, an organization of absolutely no merit, as far as I can tell, since they think the books you just showed on your list, many of them are pornographic. Uh, there is a teacher, an English teacher, I regret to say, in uh, Escambia County who wants uh, and Tango Makes Three, a book, a true story about two male penguins raising a chick removed from all school and public libraries because what if the children, as she put it, see the penguins as people of the same sex engaged in a loving relationship, God forbid, right? Um, or maybe the kids want to turn into penguins. I don't know. Uh, that's absurd, but it's the subject of a lawsuit. There are important lawsuits working their way through. But the problem, the bigger problem, is this chilling effect of children given the idea that some books will harm them, actively harm them, and all this stuff about protecting children. What we're protecting them from is reality. You know, if, if we can't ever about sex or race or gender uh, or American history in truthful terms. Um, we don't want to upset anybody, and the governor means white but, kids. But, but Diane, the, the, the governor would point to the local decisions and say some of the books contain sexually explicit material. Kids should not have access to these books in their school library. Uh, some of them do have sex, Some many, many other books have violence. Um, I don't know if the governor has actually, you know, met, say, a middle school kid, but if they have access to a computer or a, or a cell phone, uh, they can see way worse stuff, and they do. I mean, I hear this. I teach high school teachers sometimes. Boy, have they got stories. These aren't books. This is just a click away 
So I think it's disingenuous, but I think these laws and these decrees, whether state or local, are designed to intimidate teachers and librarians. Steve, let's go and to you. We are, you know, who know this stuff and they aren't, sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry too. Steve, uh, what, what's your take on this? Well, um, this is something that, uh, that more people are taking matters into their own hands about, which is a good thing. We wrote this week about a grassroots event being held in Delray Beach to educate people uh, on the dangers of, of these book bans and how people can fight back. And here's another way people can and should respond, and, you know, in my opinion. Amendment one on the ballot in Florida in November is gonna be a proposal from the governor and legislature to make school board elections partisan. They are now nonpartisan, but they're pretty partisan. Uh, just look at the situation we've just seen in Sarasota with the, with the Bridget Ziegler fiasco. Um, if you make school board elections partisan, you're gonna have a Bridget Ziegler type situation probably in all 67 counties. This is all related, Rob. Um, and so um, voters in Florida should, should take steps in November to, and then should vote no to minimize the level of partisanship in local public education. And, and a huge amount of money is gonna be poured into school board races in the coming year too. Well, our next story at number three, culture wars. The debate over removing books follows a series of decisions by Tallahassee to limit what could be taught and discussed in public schools. Limits have been placed on teaching black history and LGBTQ issues. And the governor has gone after diversity, equity, and inclusion programs in government, universities, and even private businesses. Last month, he said on X that the left tells us DEI stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. But as practiced, he says, it more closely represents discrimination, exclusion, and indoctrination. Eric, uh, does DEI represent uh, exclusion and indoctrination? <clears throat> no, it doesn't. But what it does represent is a prime opportunity for the governor to mobilize frustration that people have with government, frustration they have with the educational system, frustration that they may even have with how they've done in their own careers or with business, and channel it against something uh, that is a distraction, ultimately. Um, what Floridians probably need more effective action on is, you know, what to do about our high insurance rates, what to do about the high uh, cost of renting and the high cost of buying homes, what to do about inflation in the state. But rather than offer us substantive policies addressing that kind of stuff, he wants to go after these issues um, that he knows will divide the, the voters, that he knows uh, are sort of easy wins for a conservative, and ultimately distract people uh, from the real things that are going on, particularly, you know, what is he doing to corral development? What is he doing to make sure that all the people who are coming to Florida live in places where traffic is manageable, where there's public transit, where uh, development and environmentalism are balanced? He's not talking about any of that stuff. He's talking about this stuff that, frankly, I thought we had already settled. Mm -hmm. Ray, uh, culture wars have taken over Tallahassee. They passed a lot of measures uh, that uh, I think uh, appeal to social conservatives. Eric just gave us a list of things that the, that the state is not doing, but what's your take? Why is Tallahassee so preoccupied with culture war issues? Well, I think it's political demagoguery, frankly, and I don't think it really has anything to do with social conservatism. I think uh, many of my friends have started to use a term which they haven't used in years, and it's fascism. I think it's, the, it's, it's really sad what has happened in terms of uh, 
uh, at a time when there's so much hate in the world, uh, we, we need so much more information about race and diversity and to attack Black Lives Matter, to attack uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, to attack uh, critical race theory as, as if they're, as, as, as I think Chris Rufo said, it's the new Marxism. And of course it is in a sense that that's, it's their bully boy is what they're, what they're going after. And I think uh, it'll take us generations to, I think, to, to, to undo the damage that's been done. I, I would sum this up in three words. I would say it's about distraction, it's about projection, because he is claiming to be freeing people, but what he's doing is imposing the authority of himself and Tallahassee on all kinds of local school boards and local organizations. And it's also about intimidation. It is about making educators think twice before uh, they teach their kids, um, the, the pupils about black history. It's about making uh, corporate executives think twice before they actually take action to dismantle systemic racism inside their businesses and inside their community. It's about intimidating people so that they limit themselves so that he doesn't have to do so much overtly to limit them himself. And just quickly, in the 30 seconds we have left, there's this Ziegler sex scandal in Sarasota involving the chair of the Florida Republican Party. Uh, there are calls for him within the party to resign because he engaged in a three-way sexual encounter with his wife and another woman. For, the, for Republicans to have a leader that is privately engaged in gay and lesbian sex but publicly against it, what does that say? It's hypocrisy uh, at its highest level, but we've seen this before. We've seen uh, allegations, terrible allegations against people like Matt Gates. Uh, we've seen allegations against people, um, you, uh, you know, but religious leaders. We've seen this. Weren't proved, though. Well, you know, we'll see with Matt Gates. But, but basically, uh, we've, again, what we're talking about is what these officials are saying they stand for and why they're doing what they're doing is not what they stand for and not why they're doing what they're doing. So it's no surprise that uh, a party that's been hypocritical about book bans would also be hypocritical about what their officials do in private. And if this hadn't become public, um, you know, I'm sure that hypocrisy would never have been forced to be addressed. Okay. Well, our next story at number two, DeSantis's poll numbers dropped in the presidential campaign. As the Washington Post and other outlets have reported, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis entered the Republican presidential race with an unmatched war chest and a $269 million plan to change how campaigns are usually funded. The governor hoped never back down an independent PAC that he funded would find a way to work with his official campaign to help him win the early primary states. With just weeks to go before the Iowa caucuses, the experiment is now in tatters. The super PAC that funded almost all of DeSantis's advertising and field programs and much of the candidates' travel and events has been sidelined by infighting and resignations at the independent PAC. Emily, the uh, governor is in trouble as he, uh, he works on his presidential ambition in Iowa and New Hampshire. Why is he in so much trouble? Why hasn't he made some progress against Donald Trump? Yeah, Rob, that really is the question. And I think we will see just how much trouble he's in, obviously, starting on January 15th with the Iowa caucuses. But it's one that I've, I've been asking Iowans myself as I get ready to go to Iowa next month. I've been talking to a lot of people in Iowa involved sort of with local Republican politics about, you know, why isn't DeSantis clicking in your state after traveling to all 99 counties and getting all these big endorsements? And 
it's interesting because um, I hear sort of a variety of answers. I don't think there'll be one sole thing that we can sort of neatly tie this to and say this is why Ron DeSantis, you know, had had the outcome that he will. But um, but there is a variety of reasons. I think for a lot of people, decision number one among Republicans right now is, do I still support Trump? Um, if they do, then they may not even be open to a Ron DeSantis type. Um, you know, some Trump voters I spoke to said that he really hasn't presented a convincing enough case for them to depart from somebody that, you know, they've been supporting for years at this point. Um, but if people are open to another candidate other than Trump, we see momentum behind people like Nikki Haley, who's really starting to cut into, I think, some of the support that he was hoping to get in places like Iowa and especially in New Hampshire. Um, and so I think, you know, it could be a death by a thousand cuts situation. But as you mentioned, Rob, there have been plenty of self-inflicted wounds along the way. The infighting and in the super PAC has been spilling out into public view. You know, we're at a crucial time one month before Iowa where voters are really starting to perk up and really pay attention and think seriously about who they're going to caucus for. And to have, you know, high profile resignations sort of cutting into his sales pitch of, I'm a guy without drama. I'm a guy who's going to win the general election. You can trust me. You know, that's all very bad timing for him. And Emily, why is there such bad blood between DeSantis and the Trump campaign? And the Trump campaign? Yeah. Well, I think there's, um, you know, there's a long history there with uh, DeSantis's um, 2018 victory largely coming from Trump's endorsement and then Trump over the years, seeing DeSantis's ambitions, you know, his run for president has been an open secret in Florida politics for a long time, well before he officially announced. And so the the view within Trump world is that DeSantis was disloyal and not waiting his turn. Um, and I think that that sentiment, you know, that that contributes to the bad blood from the DeSantis camp as well. And it's interesting, I have talked to voters who do sort of agree with that line of thinking, um, people who are still supporting Donald Trump, um, who think that DeSantis is great, but that he should have waited his turn and that they would have supported him had he just waited another cycle. And so um, I do think that there's a lot of talk now about timing and about, you know, was this the right election for him to pick to run in? But you have to remember, too, that after the 2022 reelection, when he won by this massive landslide, he had so much buzz and momentum nationally. And it did sort of seem like, you know, possibly the right time for him. But really, since then, his poll numbers have only dropped and dropped and dropped and kept dropping. All right. Well, and finally, our number one story for 2023. The GOP surge in voter registration. The Republican Party of Florida now has a nearly 700,000 voter registration edge over the Florida Democratic Party as of the end of last month. The State Division of Elections website shows that 5.2 million Floridians were registered as Republicans, while 4.5 million were registered as Democrats. Another 3.9 million were registered with no party affiliation or with third parties. Democrats historically held a registration edge here in the state, but Republicans overtook them two years ago, and they've steadfastly expanded their lead. And Republicans hold all statewide offices, a majority of Florida's congressional delegation, and supermajorities in the Florida House and Senate. Steve, why have Republicans been so successful and Democrats apparently so hapless? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a combination of both factors for sure. Um, and you have to put the Democrats' failure 
uh, up there with the Republican success. It is getting mathematically almost impossible uh, for a Democrat to win a statewide election in Florida. You know, we're going to see in 2024 Rick Scott seeking re-election as a senator, as a Republican. He's got serious Democratic opposition, but he's got the wind at his back with these numbers. Let me explain a couple of things that are going on. One is, first of all, even though the Republicans have this historic advantage numerically, it's important to remember they only account for 30, little less than 38% of registered voters in the state. They're not a majority in, in voter registration, but they are way, way in the lead. Democrats are at about 33%, and the remaining 30% uh, are no party affiliation, NPA voters. The other thing that we're seeing in these numbers, Rob, is is that it's a it's there's a little bit of a mirage at work here because the numbers that you you quoted which are accurate is the number of what are known as active voters florida calls voters active or inactive and without getting too deep in the weeds you become an inactive voter basically if you stop voting and you got a postcard mailer from your elections office and you didn't respond inactive voters may have moved away they may have died they may just not be interested in politics. And statistically, what I keep seeing around the state is Democrats tend to have more, more inactive voters in their ranks than Republicans do. Republicans are more consistent voters. They're more loyal voters. They're, they don't take as much effort to motivate, and we see that in the results. I want to mention two counties really quick about this trend because I've spent a lot of time researching and writing about it. Two counties that are really important in this discussion are Palm Beach which is no longer the deep blue Democratic county that it once was. It is truly purple. The Democratic advantage in Palm Beach County is down to about 60,000 votes. As you know, Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach, those three counties are home to about a third of all Democrats in the state. The other county that's really important in your backyard is Pinellas. Pinellas County, St. Pete, Clearwater, used to be for many, many cycles. I watched the numbers there. Pinellas was almost unique in the state in that it had almost exactly the same number of Democrats and Republicans, and now the Republicans have almost a 30,000-vote lead. So there you have it. Boy, I wish we had more time. Steve, everybody, thank you so much for a great program. Hope you all have a safe and happy New Year. Thank you for being part of this program, and thank you for joining us. Send us your comments at ftwwedu.org, and please like us on Facebook. You can view this and past shows online at wedu.org or on the PBS app. Florida This Week is now available as a podcast. And from all of us here at WEDU, have a great weekend and a happy new year.